Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Alami podcast Change Your Company. My guest today is Nancy Murphy. Hi Nancy, good to have you with us. Hello, glad to be here. And uh, we are we are live on LinkedIn, so uh, I hope that we'll have some interaction from the people who will be watching us. Uh, however, uh, we're going to dive deep into a topic which is very close to my heart and to the heart of a lot of the listeners, which is about change. Mm -hmm. I just want to do like a quick introduction. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of CS CSR Communications and creator of a very interesting program, which is called the Entrepreneur uh, Influence Lab, which is all about helping catalyst of change within organization drive such initiatives forward. So uh, I'm, I'm very curious and uh, excited about this, having this conversation together. Uh, so what, what got you into this area? And uh, uh, I'm sure that there, been, there were some struggles at the beginning or challenges. So please tell us about it. Oh, absolutely. Lots of challenges. Yeah. I probably started my challenge status quo activity when I was a grade school student back in Columbus, Ohio, attending Catholic schools and was really curious why some of the messages that we were getting about the role of girls and women in society um, didn't quite align with what I believe to be true. And so back even, you know, when I was a young child, sort of started questioning that and learning the different techniques to get people to listen to some of the questioning and challenging and create allies to help lead change there. And I just kept finding myself in these internal change agent roles. You know, every job I had, I was either hired to lead change or I wasn't hired to lead change, but I sort of looked around and thought, hmm, I bet we could do this better or differently, more efficiently, more effectively. And I learned a lot of lessons about what doesn't work when yeah. you're trying to influence change inside organizations. And after a while, I thought, I've learned some good lessons now and figured out what does work. And I really should share these with others who are facing similar challenges. Yeah. So um, let's get started with some of these lessons and uh, kind of uh, applications. Uh, but before, let me just say, if uh, for anyone who's watching us on LinkedIn, if you have any question or comment, please interact with us. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, um, please tell us about uh, some of these insights, which could be helpful for some of the leaders out there. Well, a couple of mistakes, I guess, that I see folks make. Um, one is believing that we can proclaim our vision for change once and be done, right? <laughs> yeah. So we would love to say, here's where I think we need to go. Here's what we need to do differently. Check, everybody just hop on board, right? But instead, I say that change leaders need the campaigner's commitment. So just like the candidate on the campaign trail who is out there saying the same stump speech over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, we need to put that vision, that why, that destination out there over and over with the same level of enthusiasm and respond to the challenges or the questions that we're getting as if it's the first time we've ever heard them, even though you know we may have heard them over and over again. 
So believing that we can say it once and be done is a mistake that I think a lot of folks make. Yeah. Another mistake that I see really common in large organizations, especially, is we try to go it alone. And whether you're talking about 50 people, 500 or 50,000 people organization that you're trying to shift, it can be really hard to do that alone. And so for, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, not just the fact that we need help, but also we're going to have one perspective and we're probably going to miss things as a result. So I always say that change leaders need a group of champions inside their organization to create that ripple effect and help carry the burden. And they need a cadre of change leaders outside their organization, a group of peers who can offer some perspective, insight, and support. So those are just a couple of mistakes that I see folks make a lot. That's great. And uh, the first point actually reminded, reminds me of um, Jack Welsh. He, he, he says something in one of his books that he used to repeat the mission that sometimes he got sick of it, you know, just mm. repeating it like to, to the people. Uh, but he had to. Uh, and, uh, and he said something interesting that the, the proof that, you know, it worked driving the mission or change mm -hmm. is that if you call people in the middle of the night and they wake up and they answer, they can tell you right away what the mission is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not encouraging anyone to try that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I think, you know, the clarity and uh, I like what you said about the enthusiasm, like, uh, you know, just sharing it, like if you're sharing it for the first time and, and being uh, being also committed to it, I think, because sometimes you know, some leaders, they, they talk about it all the time, but they don't live it. And this is here the challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That commitment is really important. I mean, one of the other common mistakes and a lesson I had to learn is you can't lead change like a New York City cab driver. So, or, you know, maybe it's a London cab driver if you're in Europe. Yeah. I don't know. London yeah. cab drivers are pretty good, though. You know, yeah. those, those if you've ever been in the backseat of a New York City cab, yeah. You know, they tend to drive like slam on the brakes, slam on the gas, slam on the brakes, slam on the gas. Like okay. There's no middle ground. It's just one or the other. And so yeah. by the time you arrive at your destination, you're feeling a little nauseous, you know, maybe scared and definitely sort of jerked around. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so I see change leaders do this a lot because we get really excited about this vision we have. We have a sense of urgency. We're pro we probably have a little bit of that entrepreneurial quick start energy, right? So we, and we might've been thinking about this in our heads for a long time when we finally get to put it out there to the world and we're ready to, you know, take off zero to 60 in a hot second. We slam on the gas and everybody's sort of thrown back like, whoa, we weren't quite, we didn't even have our seatbelts buckled yet. And so inevitably, you encounter some pushback, some resistance. Maybe things don't go exactly as you planned. You hit a little bump in the road. So now all of a sudden, oh God, what did I do? Right? Slam on the brakes. Let's just stop. Let's pull back. Let's, you know, and so then people are like, well, wait, now I'm running forward and you slammed on the brakes. So now I'm thrown against the back again. And so that commitment is something I work with a lot of leaders on. How do you get really grounded in your commitment to this? even when you hit resistance, even when you hit bumps in the road. Mm -hmm. And I will say commitment is different 
than being rigidly locked in to exactly not just your vision for the end game, right? But how you think you're going to get there. Exactly. So yeah. commitment means, you know, yes, this is happening. Um, yes, I'm committed to getting there in the best way possible for all involved, but not I'm so rigidly locked into my way, right? That yeah. I have no space for co-creation or adapt or adaptation. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so being uh, committed to the vision or the outcome, but then being flexible on the way to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk about having a, a group uh, of people who are around to help uh, driving the change, uh, is this what you mean by entrepreneur, intrapre, entrepreneur or is this something different, entrepreneur? So I say the entrepreneurs are really the unsung heroes of organizational change. Mm -hmm. Right. So these are folks who bring the entrepreneurial spirit. They're innovative. They've got that experimenters mindset. Right. They like to learn and try new things. They're probably a little more risk tolerant than others. And they, unlike entrepreneurs who will kind of disrupt organizations and systems by going outside, Mm -hmm. right? And stirring things up. They're going to do that from within. They're changing organizations from within. So these now we have different kinds of entrepreneurs, right? We might have the entrepreneur who is making the bold statements, leading the charge, putting those public proclamations out there, creating the big vision. We also need the entrepreneurs. These are the real unsung heroes who will come in and do the small strategic sustained action that make that grand gesture, that bold proclamation real. Mm. That's why I say they're the unsung heroes, because it's really easy to start change with a grand gesture, with a big announcement, with some mm. bold commitment. But to get change that actually sticks, <laughs> we need those small strategic actions day after day, week after week. Mm -hmm. But why, why do you think a lot of leaders, they go out there, they make this big announcement and, uh, and then they leave, it, they leave it there? Is it because they don't know what to do next? Uh, is it because they, they have too many priorities? Uh, is it because they think that's how change works? You know, you just announce it. What is it? Yes. <laughs> it's, right. It's, I mean, <laughs> I, probably for every leader, there's going to be a different reason of why yeah, that happens yeah. and why they fall short on the yeah. follow-up. Right. So I think the examples you gave are good, are good. Ones. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that has happened. And I, I know cases where that's happened. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to say that the folks who make these big um, announcements or these grand gestures are not sincere in that. Although I imagine in some cases there's pressure or there's a desire to sort of be in a club of somebody who's now made an announcement that, you know, in the U.S. over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of um, attention and um, investment around diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly racial justice and racial diversity. And so, you know, we, we, well, we don't want to be seen as not part of that or not supportive of that, right? So we're going to make a commitment um, about the diversity of our senior leadership within three years or, you know, whatever it is. And I, I wouldn't say that they're not sincere on that for the most part. But where I think 
sometimes then things fall apart is not not that folks don't know it's going to take work after that. It's that they don't understand exactly what kind of work or mm. how deep it's going to need to go. Mm. Or in a lot of cases, you know, I will say change leaders need to operate more like Indiana Jones. So I know Indiana Jones that, you know, that, that those movies were popular around the world. So I hope all of our <laughs> listeners understand what I mean by that. Mm which is we need to go on a quest, an archaeological dig to find what we at CSR Communications call artifacts. These are all the little things we leave behind when we move forward with change mm -hmm. that tell us who and what we value, what matters, and how things really get done around here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they conflict with the change we want. So this is where I think a lot of leaders fall short because they're focused on maybe the big things, but we don't dig deep enough to find those artifacts that send the subtle signals that can erode trust if they're in conflict with the change we want, or that can make it really hard for people to do the things that we want them to do, even if they want to. They can't work in these new ways. They can't achieve these objectives because there are all these little things left behind that require them to work in the old way or that, you know, align with something different. And it just creates too much friction. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need to go on these archaeological digs and unearth these things, figure out which ones we can do something about, and then lay down new ones that align with the change we want. So one example of this could be culture or values or processes that could hinder driving uh, this change forward, right? Yes. And mm -hmm. when I work with organizations, you know, we always encourage people to get, let's get really specific, right? So let's not just say culture, like what's the thing that contributes to the culture that might be, or processes. Processes are a great place to look, but then let's get really clear on well, what specific processes. So let me give you some examples. Mm -hmm. From a culture standpoint, we worked with a global nonprofit that was struggling to retain women leaders. So they would get to a certain level in the organization and right before they were going to get promoted into kind of a senior or executive role, they would leave. The organization started a mentoring program. They appointed a gender council to advise the CEO, but nothing worked. Mm -hmm. So we came in with our excavation process and unearthed a whole bunch of things. But, but I'll give you just one example, which was... Um, the shout outs that they did at the start of their weekly staff meetings, you know, where you sort of celebrate or recognize people all sounded something like this. Nancy, huge thanks to you and your entire team for working around the clock last week on that big proposal. Really, you really appreciate that made all the difference. Now, every once in a while, we might want to celebrate people who've gone above and beyond. But if every week what you're celebrating is the fact that people can have no personal life because the only way to get recognized and promoted is if you work around the clock. So that that's a culture element. Sometimes we call them glory stories, right? What are those myths and legends about the organization mm. that we tell over and over again? And what kind of signals do they send? So that's a culture example. On a process example, there's um, another group we worked with that was most of their resources came from the U.S. government. So they got U.S. government grants and contracts. 
they decided we want to shift. We want to start having more corporate partnerships, some private philanthropy partnerships, but all of their processes, protocols, checklists, systems were designed to serve one customer and it was the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So they could not get a proposal out the door that was under 50 pages, right? It was very technical and no one would approve it. Like the sign-off process just could. And the company wanted a two-page thing, right? So like their, their specific proposal development, business development processes did not align with the change that the direction they wanted to go. It was making it too hard for people to succeed. So they thought, we must not really want this, right? So mm. it really erodes trust. It can be hugely problematic. This one I can relate to because I worked in proposal development for government business. So I know. Okay, I so know you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know how big they can, uh, right. they, they can be, yeah. Um, but if we look at from the people perspective in terms of, um, you know, why they are resistant to change. And maybe, maybe even mm -hmm. the expression might be uh, kind of not uh, misleading. But, but, you know, what, what could stand in the way also from the people perspective to be able like to, to go with what the organization is driving. Yeah. Well, there's, so let me start with the three common types of resistance to change that we see. And then if you want, we can go into some of the psychological triggers that are yeah. underneath those that really make change hard. Yeah. So first of all, I always say that resistance is not always a bad thing and it can actually be very good, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about strength training, when you go to the gym, what are you doing? You're creating resistance to make yourself stronger. Absolutely. And resistance can do that when, if we're open to it, right? So I always say the very first thing before you try to figure out how to overcome it is to shift your mindset around it. So if we can see resistance as a gift, then we can get the benefits of it. So how can this make my idea stronger? How can this illuminate blind spots? How can this mitigate any unnecessary risk? So right? in a way, so, in a way, it's like uh, energy, right? Energy, and you try and kind of to channel it in the right yes. direction. Yeah, okay. Yes, exactly. So when we when we get defensive in the face of resistance, so we you know we've got this like wall coming at us, and then we get defensive, and so then the wall, then everybody just you know the wall just gets bigger and bigger, and nothing yeah. happens. Yeah. So, so what I do then is help leaders understand what might be going on underneath this resistance, so they can get the benefit from it and overcome it. So we talk about three common types of resistance, and I bet your you know listeners will. Um, these will sound familiar to yeah. folks inside the organization. So the first one, the status quo defenders, <laughs> right? So these are folks who are like, they love the way things are. They use language like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Absolutely. And so for, for a lot of these folks, they might have been people who were part of creating what is now the status quo. They may have been part of building that or creating that system or contributing to that culture. So we want to be really careful because when we start criticizing or attacking the status quo, they perceive it as an attack on themselves, right? The, the status quo is so closely tied to their identity 
mm. that they can get really defense. So, and that, that doesn't serve anybody well. So we want to understand what's going on there. And one of the things we can do is invite them as we move forward with change to help us identify what things in the status quo should we preserve and protect as we move forward, right? What, what will continue to serve us well? What do we need to make sure we don't throw out accidentally? Now you give them clear parameters for that, mm. right? But that can be a way to overcome that type of resistance. The second type of common type of resistance is what we call the what ifers. So these are those folks, you know, the, a lot of times the lawyers, you know, the general counsel, the CFO, they're yeah. kind of the doomsday planners, right? They're the ones who are like, what if we do this and all of our customers walk out the door tomorrow? What if we do this and we lose our top performers and no one wants to come work for us anymore, right? Like they go to those deepest, darkest places. So that can be great for exactly. leaders who are like me, where I tend to be overly optimistic. I think it's all going to work out. You know, I've got some blind spots. So I love these what ifers. They are my best partners when it comes to leading change. So we but but uh, but let's but, but I just yeah. want to say something. It's uh, but sometimes we resist them also. I mean, even on a personal level, no. I mean, I I know it myself. You know, I have like, I mean, I appreciate them, but um, uh, how to say it? Like the unconscious, unconsciously, I would be resisting. Consciously, of I'm course. like like no. I need I need of to course. welcome them. Yeah, yeah. Of course, because if if we're you know the kinds of people who tend to be a little more open. Yeah. to change or a little more optimal, you know? So it can be frustrating because we're like, can't they just get on board? That is never going to happen. You know, like <laughs> it can be very frustrating. And trust me, this took me probably two or three years in, in one scenario with a group of people where I just was like, I, I want this person off my board. Like I can't deal with them anymore. It's really <laughs> ridiculous until I had this mindset shift. And in mm. the end, this person was the biggest ally for me in the change I was wow. making. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, once I sort of appreciated and validated what he was bringing to the table and saw that there was robot, then he was like, okay, you know, I, I am on board with this vision. I just want to make sure we don't break the organization in the process. Okay, well, that's, that's a valid concern, right? That's a valid value to bring to the table. So what we can do with these folks is invite them, you know, send them off in the corner to do their deepest, darkest thinking to come up with those <laughs> absolute worst case scenarios, because that's what they're going to do anyway. So yeah. we might as well invite them to do that, right? Mm. And create a productive space where we're going to get that feedback, that input, as opposed to, you know, sort of undermining on the side. And then I always ask a bunch of questions, right, when I get that scenario planning back or those scenarios back to get it to the scenario planning, which is how, okay, how likely is that to happen? And even if they tell me it's 50% likely or 80% likely, which usually isn't the case, but let's pretend it is, then yeah. I'll say, okay, it's 80% likely. Whew. We better, what would we do if that did happen? Mm -hmm. Right. That's when you get into the planning part. So, or what could we do now to reduce the likelihood of that happening? And so, you know, again, you want to engage these people's strengths as opposed to continuing to fight against them because it's not going to be productive. And then the third type of common resistance to change are 
those yes, no people, right? These are the folks who sit in our office or in the team meeting or in the town hall and they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're shaking their heads. They're all on board, right? And then they walk out the door and they do the exact opposite or they don't do <laughs> what they promised to do. Super frustrating because you thought they were on board with you, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. What's going on? So there are actually four subtypes to this one, but basically we want to find out, is it a lack of will? So they're saying yes, but they really don't mean it. So there's like the stallers is one of these types. These are folks who've been in our organizations for a long time. They're going to continue to be there for a long time. So they're just going to wait you out right? They've seen this before. Other enthusiastic folks have come in with big visions for change. Mm. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to give up this idea or you're going to leave entirely and I'm still going to be here. So I'm just yeah. going to wait you out, right? So that that's one. And there, for that one, we need to make sure there are clear consequences for not getting going along with the mm. change, right? And then if it's a lack of way, that's where, you know, is it the example I gave you of the artifacts, is it that they're they're struggling because we've left all these little things behind that make it too hard for them to do the new things that we want mm -hmm. them to do? Mm -hmm. Or is it that they're struggling because they don't have the skills, the knowledge, the capacity to do the thing in this new way or to do this entirely new process. And so we need to give them a little, we need to make it okay for them to say that, number one, and then we need to give them some training or some skill building or some support to get there. Mm. That's great. I like the way you categorize this. And I think all of these examples are something we can, uh, we can relate to uh, and uh, we've seen in our leadership journey in a way. So... What are some advices or practical things that you think uh, especially young leaders could do um, if they are if they want to change things, if they want to implement something new? Well, I always say that entrepreneur does not equal a certain level or title inside an organization, right? Really, anyone can identify opportunities to improve or to have the organization be more equitable, be more diverse, be more environmentally sustainable, right? Anyone can see those opportunities. So I wouldn't discourage people who feel like, well, I don't have the right title or the right role yet. I'm not at the right level. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes that positional authority opens up, obviously opens up doors or can make things happen faster. If you're in the C-suite, you can sort of proclaim your vision for change and others likely have to get on board. If that's not your role, then we really need to up our influence game, right? We need to understand how do I say things in a way that other will, others will listen? How do I get the attention <laughs> when I'm not in the C-suite. And so this is where all of the best influence techniques and skills come into play. And one that I would share, all, which is a great one for young leaders to learn because it will serve you well in your career and in your life, regardless of whether you're doing entrepreneurial work or not. And that is um, this idea of perspective taking, which is really built on empathy. 
So I call empathy the Swiss army knife of change leadership. It serves so many purposes. It is a great tool to do so many things inside our organizations as leaders. And so if, you know, one mistake I see, particularly younger folks inside organizations is, you know, we'll come in, we'll be, well, I'll say when, when I was younger, I shouldn't use the we now, but, you know, young people will come in and we see everything with fresh eyes, right? We tend to be idealistic and optimistic and we immediately see things that can be better. And our approach is often, and why don't all these old folks see this? You know, why can't we, <laughs> like, we want it to change instantly? Yeah, that's another, yeah, another thing. And we, yeah. you know, we don't know what we don't know, which can be yeah. a gift yeah. and a real value in a lot of ways. But if we just start bulldozing through of like, you people are all raw. How have you even stayed in business for 30 years doing things this way? You know, if that's the approach we have, mm that's not going to be received very well, right? So think about those status quo defenders. When we come in like that, we're immediately threatening someone else's identity because, well, what do you mean? How how have we stayed in business for 30 years? I built this business. This is what, you know, so, so we want to be careful of that. And this perspective taking idea is, okay, how do I put myself in my boss's shoes, in the vice president's shoes, in the CEO's shoes. What is it that is motivating that person? What are her dreams, desires, mm. fears, anxieties? Mm. What are they held accountable for? And how can I open the door, start the conversation about something I see that could be different by kind of connecting it to something I know that person cares about or something I know that they're anxious about. Or, you know, gosh, I know you're held accountable for bringing expenses down. And I see this opportunity if we, you know, stopped printing XYZ, not only would it be good for the environment, which may or may not be something they care about, right? But mm. it would bring expenses down. So maybe you start with that. Mm. And then in, in when you're talking to your peers, other young employees in there who you, whose behavior you need to change around printing certain things inside the company, right, they might be more motivated by protecting the environment, saving trees. So then you could start with that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's achieving two goals. It's not that you're being dece deceitful or manipulative. It's what's the thing that's going to get the other person to pause and not immediately, you know, put up the resistance wall. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, and this applies to a lot of things in life and overall, like just treating, uh, having empathy for, you know, like the people around and the fact that the way that the things are the way they are is because there was need for them to be like this before maybe. And, right. and now, and now right. we, we, and, and the, the fact that we see that we see them that they should be different is also part of, you know, the evolution. Uh, but I like what you said about like not really fighting it, but just going in a way with it and then changing it. Uh, I have like a, I have this saying, which is actually it's a title of a book I started writing and it's called change your company or change your company. And, uh, <laughs> And, and, and tell me and, more <laughs> and, and and the idea is you know like be be a positive uh, change within your organization make it better or mm. go somewhere else we can mm. when you can do so so mm. but don't be yeah. a passenger don't be like someone who is playing a victim or playing like 
uh, you know, this is this is how it is. I cannot change anything. No, you mm. can. You can, but you mm. have to step up. You have to take a role, you know, role, and you have to find the cause, and you need to find, like, something which is not working and make it work, maybe even outside your area of responsibility. It doesn't yeah. have to be within your area of responsibility. But when you do so, you're, there are two things which you will get that no one can take from you. One is a fulfillment because you did the right thing. Mm-hmm. And two, you grew, you grew as a person, as a professional. Yes. And this is something that no one will take with you in addition to the fact that you helped and you uh, you made a positive impact. So um, and that's why, I mean, this, what what you've been talking about, it's it's something which every leader and leader without titles, as you said, mm-hmm. that they can benefit from. You know, they yeah. they can they can use and do something, especially within medium to large organizations where things are more difficult and more complex. And we need these people. We need these entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, and I I mean, since we are talking about this, I'm curious a little bit about your program. This one about inter- the entrepreneur program. So. Tell us a little bit about it. Like, what is it exactly? So it's a six-month program that yeah. sort of walks change leaders through a variety of tutorials and sort of skill building and practic- practical practicing opportunities for all the skills and mindset and insight that we need to lead change faster with less frustration and resistance, right? So it's everything from, you know, I I think this uh, session, this episode is titled Becoming a Credible Leader of Change. So that's where we start because so many times, and, and this is a good piece of advice for your young leader listeners as well, you know, we folks will come to me and say, Nancy, we need advice on how to get other people to do what we want them to do. Right. <laughs> that and I would say, great, let's look in the mirror. Right. So we want to start with ourselves because that's the one thing we can control. And are we modeling the yeah. kind of openness to change and things? So we, we start with that and then we go through in great detail the common types of resistance to change and how to overcome them. Five psychological triggers that make change hard and what to do about them to move those triggers from threats that create blockers to rewards that create backers of our change. And then we go really deep around kind of mapping the power and influence centers within our organizations and understanding that perspective taking and how to do it and Um, and how to communicate our vision for change and the how we're going to get there consistently and effectively. Mm -hmm. That commitment that we talked about earlier so that we don't drive change like a New York City cab driver, right? So we, um, we bring together folks from a variety of organizations who are leading different kinds of change so they can learn from each other and learn how Gosh, it seems like this city government agency and this family foundation and this global company and this nonprofit and this association, well, they're totally different, right? It's interesting how much they have in common. Of course, yeah. And then we also will bring the lab sometimes into an organization and bring together that kind of cadre of change champions, right, that we talked about earlier, who are collectively leading that change, and we'll do a a custom lab with them. So that's how it works. 
Yeah. So Nancy, tell us uh, some personal questions. What's uh, one success habit that uh, helped you to to be where you are today, which mm-hmm. is advising and helping organizations and uh, senior leaders to to improve their organization and to drive uh, positive changes? So I guess I would say it's my commitment to my morning practice. So that morning practice really keeps me keeps me healthy and it keeps me grounded. So that includes things like um, meditation or reflection time. Mm-hmm. That includes before you know the day gets too crazy. That includes physical activity, exercise. It includes um, a ten ideas list to kind of jumpstart my creative thinking and get any random things out of my head that I might have not been sleeping well because they were swirling around in there. Um, And then sort of regrounding myself with my long-term vision, with my goals for the year, with my quarterly priority, and then starting off, okay, what will my focus be today? Not just sort of jumping in and being reactive, right? But getting my mind and my body in the right place and then getting into focus of here's what I need to do today so that I can achieve my goal for the year, which contributes to this long-term vision. And I think so much, so many of us are so reactive these days that just that little proactive habit makes a huge difference. That's a great, uh, I, I can, I can also relate to this habit and, uh, in a way it changed my life. I started it like maybe 10 years ago or so. And since then, everything like changed completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about learning? I mean, how did you keep learning and, and growing? Oh, goodness. I mean, I think that's just in my DNA. My mom mm-hmm. used to say that if I could afford it, I would be a perpetual student. Well, you know, <laughs> the brilliant thing about being alive in 2021 is I don't have to afford it because there's so many great learning opportunities available for free in the world, mm-hmm. right? Your podcast, lots, so many podcasts. So you can take college courses online for free in a lot of ways, if you don't want a grade or credit college credit. So I am naturally a learner. I think that's my number one strength on the strength finder. Um, So I am, I love my local library. I am constantly checking out giant stacks of books and my most favorite days are sitting in the corner with my stack of library books and reading six at a time and trying to find patterns or things that I could use to help the clients I work with kind of put them in a different way and a different um, context for them. So I am, I'm a natural learner. I make time every year for my own training and every week for my own professional development and learning. Wow. That's amazing. Um, So my last question is what's the legacy that you like to leave behind Nancy? Mm. Well, I would say a few years ago, I really got, probably six years ago now, I got very committed to this idea of helping entrepreneurs, change leaders, get everything they need to succeed. Because our large institutions, our large organizations have such outsized influence in the world, not just for the people they employ, but the customers they serve, the communities in which they operate, the governments that they pay taxes to, um, or that they support. And so I just, to me, we're going to get the kind of world we want faster if these unsung heroes have what they need to succeed. 
So my personal passion, my personal mission is to help them get what they need to succeed. And so the legacy I could leave behind is that these entrepreneurs now have the tools and techniques to get their vision real faster. And I also think I, I try every day to model some of the behaviors that I teach my entrepreneurs, you know, how to be that credible leader of change, how to have that, those proactive practices that keep me out of the distracted, reactive mind so that I'm a model for mm -hmm. anyone, you know, whether they listen to me on a podcast, whether it's my nieces and nephews who I know ever since they were little were always kind of paying attention to what I was doing to, you know, friends and family. And so really to be that model of what good leadership looks like in 2021. And so that's what I hope I leave behind. This is amazing. Thank you so much, Nancy. I, uh, I learned a lot from this uh, conversation. And uh, it also reminded me of things that uh, um, I, I apply and part of my life, like the morning mm. habit, but also about like uh, having empathy. I think this is so powerful. And sometimes we lose sight of it, which is, uh, you know, by having just empathy, we we can we can improve things, maybe even faster than resisting it and fighting mm. it. Uh, uh, again, I, I got so so much from this conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being with us and my for pleasure. sharing for sharing uh, all this experience and wisdom uh, with my audience, with uh, podcast uh, listeners. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, for all our listeners, thank you so much for uh, being with us and supporting this podcast. And like always, uh, please give us feedback. And uh, until the next time, please stay inspired and make the biggest impact you could make within your area mm -hmm. of responsibility and beyond it. Bye.